Where you are going to turn in your Bible is going to depend upon just how dexterous you are with uh, your fingers. You can turn to Colossians chapter 4. We will head that direction. But uh, where I need to read from right now is Isaiah chapter 36. We are going to read Isaiah chapter 36 and 37 this morning. That may be a mistake. We'll find out together. If this turns into two messages that you, you know it did not go as planned. So hopefully it will be one message, but we will see. Um, why are we going to the book of Isaiah, to chapters 36 and 37? When we could just read from Colossians 4, proceed with a few verses, and make our way speedily to the end of the letter. Uh, we are going to be learning this morning about prayer and talking this morning about prayer. Prayer is a mysterious thing. Uh, I would say there are two main mysteries concerning prayer. One, uh, that God does not require our prayer. That is mysterious. Repeatedly in God's Word and in our lives, He acts in response to our prayer. And yet we worship a God that does not require our prayer in order to act. It is mysterious that God calls us to pray, demands for us to pray, waits to act for our prayer to take place, and yet He doesn't need any of it. Which brings me to the second great mystery, I think, of prayer, that God should desire to hear from any of us at all. Uh, you are not worthy, I am not worthy of God's attention I am a man, I am a created thing, I am sinful. I'm not worthy in terms of moral character or in terms of inherent value. Certainly, if God is going to pay attention to people in this world, there are more worthy candidates than me. And I'm sure that uh, all of you would echo the same refrain. Um, and yet God desires to hear from us. That is a mysterious thing. And so I want to read from Isaiah chapter 36 and 37 to set the tone of the very simple instructions that we will receive from Colossians chapter 4. Now, I love the Old Testament. I've spent at least half of my time teaching from it, probably more than half, honestly. In Isaiah, there is a great king of a great empire. The king is Sennacherib. The empire is Assyria. These are not only figures that appear in the Bible, but throughout secular history. The Assyrian Empire was the empire of its day. This king was a bit of a tyrant, as empires uh, tend to produce. Uh, he was in charge of huge swaths of territory and land. All of the nations and cities around bowed down to him. There is a king of Judah that we will find at enmity with the king of Assyria. Verse 1 of chapter 36. Now it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Uh, that is a very brief sentence for such a monumentous occasion. In fact, we know that he had conquered 46 of the fortified cities from Jerusalem, from the southern kingdom. Uh, if you were an empire or a kingdom at that point in time, your fortified cities were your strength. Con uh, the enemy would have to deal with a fortified city one by one as they made their way closer and closer to your capital. Obviously because they would not want to bypass a fortified city and they'd be attacked from the rear from the military station there. So these fortified cities were in fact the great missile silos of the day and one by one they all fell. 46. That's a lot. If we sat down and tried to make a list of 46 really important strategic cities for the United States, we would struggle because some of us can't even remember the capital of all of the 50 states. 46 cities is a lot, and they all fell. And as they're falling, the people in Jerusalem are recognizing that they are losing and losing and losing and losing, and the enemy is coming closer 200,000 Israelites, secular history records, had been taken away in captivity in these 46 fortified cities that had fell. 200,000. All, all the territory, all the land had been taken except that which surrounded the capital itself. Verse 2. Then the king of Assyria sent 
the Rab Shaka, which was the, the official spokesman of the military and the, and the king. He sent this man, the Rab Shaka, with a great army from Lachish. That was one of the fortified cities that was under siege. He sent him to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And he stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. So he stands outside the city of Jerusalem within earshot of the wall. And Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to him. So three representatives from Jerusalem went out to hear what the Rabshakeh would say. Verse 4, Then the Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, who was the king, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, Speak of what confidence is this in which you trust? I say you speak of having plans of power for war, but they are mere words. Now in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Look, you are trusting in the staff of this broken reed, Egypt, with whom they'd made an alliance, on which if a man merely leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, it is not... Is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? He did not understand the reforms that Hezekiah had made to bring true worship back to the house of the Lord in Israel. The Rabshakeh of Assyria assumed that all the high places were for worshiping the one true God of Israel. And so he mocks the reforms of the king. Verse 8, Now therefore I urge you, Give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria. And I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to put riders on them. Such is the state of their military affairs. How then will you repel one captain of the least of my master's servants and put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Have I now come up? Without the Lord against this land to destroy you? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Your God told me to come here and destroy you, is what he says. And again, this is all within earshot of the men, the terrified men on the wall. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please, speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. And do not speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. That's a benevolent request, isn't it? <laughs> Speak in a language that only the three of us will understand, a language not common to our people, so they will not hear you continue to taunt and call out our God and our King and threaten us. Uh, you can imagine that didn't go over well. Verse 12, the Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me to your master and to give you to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall who will eat and drink their own waste with you? as we besiege your city and starve you to death. So he's not speaking in Aramaic, in case you didn't pick that up. He's going to continue in the common tongue. Serves his purposes a little better. Verse 13. Then the Rabshakeh stood, and he called out with a loud voice in Hebrew, and said, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. Do not let your king deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make peace with me by a present and come out to me. Every one of you eat from his own vine. Every one of you from his own fig tree. Every one of you drink from the waters of his own cistern. See, the people were all walled up inside the city because the army was coming. They didn't all live inside the city. They had estates, houses, farmland, family land, homes, possessions, wells and cisterns and vines that they'd left all behind to retreat within the walls of the city. And here's this guy standing up saying, come out, go back to your homes. We'll have peace. Eat from your, sleep in your own bed, you know. Verse 17, until I come and take you away to a land, and it's like your own land. There's a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. 
He's not saying stay in your homes permanently, but as the Assyrians would do, we will transport you, we will deport you to a better land, to a land as good as yours, you'll be happy there. You don't all need to die. Verse 18, beware, lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? They've all died. Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Indeed, they have delivered Samaria from my hand. Who my hand? Delivered their countries from my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand. But they held their peace and answered him not a word. For the king's commandment was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. Verse chapter 37. And so it was, when King Hezekiah heard it, that he tore his clothes, he covered himself with sackcloth, he went into the house of the Lord. Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. And they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy, for the children have come to birth, but there is no strength to bring them forth. He pictures a woman who has gone the full term and is unable to bring forth her own child. This is a tragedy. It may be that the Lord your God, Isaiah, will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God, and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, and Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid of the words which you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Surely I will send a spirit upon him, and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own hand. Okay, verse 8. Then the Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Libna, for he heard that he had departed from Lachish. And the king heard concerning Terhaka, king of Ethiopia, he has come out to make war with you. So two things are happening here. The king first turns away some other greater conflict, some other greater threat. But after turning away, he hears that there will be war after all, and he makes his return. This is what it means when it says, So when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Verse 10, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Here we go again. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of King Assyria. We're doing it all over again. Look, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands by utterly destroying them, and shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered those whom my fathers have destroyed? Gozan and Haran and Rezeph and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim, Hena and Eva? All the same rebukes again. And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers, and he read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord, and he spread it before the Lord. He laid the letter before God in the temple. Then Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, saying, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they destroyed them. Now therefore, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, 
that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord, you alone. Then Isaiah of Israel, Amos sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel. And here's where you should underline. Because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria. This is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning it. Think about that. Because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria. This is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning him. Now I'll read it. You can listen. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, has despised you. This is Sennacherib, whom the Lord is speaking to. Has laughed, laughed you to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head behind your back. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes on high? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your servants you have reproached the Lord and said, By the multitude of my chariots I have come up to the height of the mountains, to the limits of Lebanon. I will cut down its tall cedars, its choice cypress trees. I will enter its farthest heights to its fruitful forest. I have dug and drunk water, and with the soles of my feet I have dried up all the brooks of their defense." Did you not hear long ago how I made it from ancient times that I formed it? Now I have brought it to pass that you should be for crushing fortified cities into heaps of ruins. Therefore, their inhabitants had little power. They were dismayed and confounded. They were as grass of the field and the green herb, as the grass of the housetops and grain blighted before its growth, but I know your dwelling place. You're going out and you're coming in and your rage against me. Because your rage against me and your tumult have come up to my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips and I will turn you back by the way which you came. This shall be a sign to you. You shall eat this year, he's speaking now to the Israelites, you shall eat this year such as grows of itself, and the second year what springs from the same, also in the third year sow and reap, plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them, and the remnant who have escaped the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward, for out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and those who escape from Mount Zion, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In other words, they will not be destroyed by this army. Verse 33, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with a single shield, nor build a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return, and he shall not come into this city, says the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Then the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose in the morning, there were the corpses, all dead. Interesting Hebrew phrase. It literally says, and when they awoke, they were dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home, remained in Nineveh, the ancient capital of Assyria. Now it came to pass as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his God, that his sons, Adramelech and Sherezer, struck him down with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. Then Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. This is, in case you have little confidence in the Bible, all confirmed historical records. Not only does the history of Israel record this whole thing, but so does the history of Egypt record the plaguing of Sennacherib's army and their return back. He never set foot in Jerusalem, never shot an arrow, never built a siege mound, never took the city, went back home, and in a great stroke of irony, was historically confirmed, in case you have little confidence in the Bible, murdered by his own son as he worshipped before his God. So tell me whose God was truly impotent. Why? Chapter 37, verse 21. Because you have prayed to me 
against Sennacherib, king of Assyria. This is the word of the Lord which is spoken concerning him. Okay, let's go to Colossians chapter 4. Having now, I hope, set the tone with the power and importance of prayer. Let us read together from Colossians chapter 4, the next verses following in our study. Beginning in verse 2, we will read through verse 4. Paul writes, Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us, that God would open to us a door for the word, to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. So these are the four verses that we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at them uh, with an acronym, which is something I rarely use. Acronyms are the study tool of the Whalens of the world, not the Osbournes of the world. Steve has an acronym for everything, and my kids uh, have uh, coincidentally learned all sorts of Bible knowledge with a myriad of acronyms and bookmarks. So I thank Steve for his great work, but for me, we'll simply use it to keep your attention this morning. The acronym is going to be the word PRAY, which ought to be simple enough, since that's exactly what we're talking about, okay? The first letter in the word PRAY is the letter P, which we will use for the word PERSEVERANCE. PERSEVERANCE. The first instruction in verse 2 is, continue earnestly in prayer. Other translations, continue diligently in prayer. We are to persevere in prayer. In other words, we are not to give up. It's okay to quit a lot of things in life. I mean that. Frankly, there are some things that we should probably jump at the opportunity to quit. Prayer is not one of those things. You are not to stop your petitions and prayer before God if you are a Christian. Continue earnestly in prayer. I want to take a moment and turn to Luke chapter 11. This is the only other passage that we'll physically turn to this morning in case you thought, here we go again, we're going to make a a whole uh, topical study out of this. We're, We're only going to go to one. Luke chapter 11. I want to read beginning in verse 1. And then we'll go back to Colossians 4. Now, some of this will be familiar. We know it from the Sermon on the Mount. I would encourage you again to know that the Sermon on the Mount is an itinerant message. In other words, it is a sermon that Jesus gave, but it's a sermon that he gave in some form or another as he went from place to place. He went across all the cities speaking. Luke here records a version of what we hear in the Sermon on the Mount from one of Jesus' message which he taught, beginning in verse 1, Luke chapter 11. Now it came to pass as he, that's Jesus, was praying in a certain place when he ceased that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. So he said to them, when you pray, say, here is the Lord's prayer. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven which is interesting. It does not begin with all of our requests and desires, does it? It begins with an acknowledgement of the great God whom we serve, of His superiority, His goodness, His plan, His reign, His sovereignty. It's very similar to how Hezekiah began his prayer, is it not? If you remember from Isaiah 37, which we read, it is. Our Father in heaven, Your name is holy. We want your kingdom to come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then petition, request. Give us day by day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Again, a version of the Lord's Prayer, which I'm sure he spoke in illustration many times. Then comes this parable. And he said to them, Which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight? Most of us uh, do not have any friends that we're willing to go to at midnight. (laughs) We're afraid of the reaction that we would get. Nevertheless, which of you would have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, 
For a friend of mine has come to me on this journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, Do not trouble me. The door is now shut. That's midnight. My children are with me in bed. Didn't have four-bedroom houses that everybody was living in back then. Everybody's asleep. You ever had a child sleep in the bed, just the bedroom with you before? Uh, you know that goal number one is to keep the child asleep, right? Uh, assuming the child's a certain age, goal number one is do not wake the child up. Uh, my children are asleep with me in bed. I cannot rise. We can imagine this voice is whispering as quietly as possible. I cannot rise and give to you, I say to you. This is Jesus speaking. Though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, <laughs> yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. <laughs> Shut up and go away! You know, I, evidently they didn't have the phone to pick up and call the cops for harassment or whatever it is. Just leave me alone! You know, he will give, take all the bread! You know, verse 9. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Now, most of us have heard that before from the Bible. But we hear it outside of the parable that Jesus tells in Luke 11. And we might be tempted to walk away with a misguided interpretation that we just ask for something and we get it. Bang! Just like that. But what is the parable illustrating for us? The importance of continuing earnestly, persistently, of persevering in prayer. Now, why is the guy in the middle of the night answering prayer requests? <laughs> because he's annoyed, right? And yet that's not how God is treating us. Because God is the one commanding us to be diligent. He wants to hear from us. More on that later. So we are not to quit in prayer. We are to continue. It is interesting, the pattern that we see in the Bible of people who are praying. Not just the Lord's Prayer, which is certainly a pattern for us, but the pattern of the Old Testament. How many times a day did David, from his youth, establish a time for himself to go and pray? You know? Hey, I saw some fingers, I'm assuming related to the question. Three. How many times did the prophet Daniel, when in captivity and exile, establish for himself? It says, according to the days of his youth, and he's a 70-year-old guy when we see it, establish a time to go to his chamber and to get down on his knees and pray before the Lord. Three times a day. Three times a day. What sort of things do you have a routine of doing in your daily life? You know, uh, you know, Justin gave me a weird look. Justin has all sorts of routines, and you don't want to mess with them. You got to make sure that he can observe them as best as possible. No. What sort of routines do you have? You brush your teeth? I hope so. Yeah. Do you get a shower? Again, I hope so. Uh, do you eat? I, I hope so. Darlene said a, a hearty yes to that. We, I don't know if she brushes her teeth and showers, but she eats each day. She was audible in her response to that one. We have routines for things that are important. If you're in the military, I assume there is some basic training that you're working on each day. Maybe not, but I would assume that that would be the case. If you're on a team, there's some basic practicing that you're going to be doing each day. We have all sorts of these things. What does it say about our faithfulness to the Lord if we have no routine for prayer? What does that say? What does it say about our faithfulness to the Lord? If our solution to this praying three times a day is to tack it on in the middle of whatever fast food meal we're getting ready to consume. Ridiculing that. It's good to thank God before we eat a meal. I think that's good. Not ridiculing that. I think if that is the extent of your prayer life, there's a problem. I think that's a problem. I'm confident saying that. We need to be persevering in prayer. We are not irritating God with these visits. In fact, God as a Father is training us in these moments. 
He is shaping us in these moments. Let me tell you something. You pray three times a day, and you make that the pattern of your life. It's not going to take you very long before some of those days are going to be really hard days. Days that you just can't wait to be over. Days that you're not sure are ever going to end. Days when things that you hold really precious and important seem compromised. And in those times of prayer, the Lord is shaping you to pause and to acknowledge Him and to take strength from your relationship with Him and to speak with Him as a father, to know Him and to pursue the rest of the day in light of that experience. The Lord is training and molding us if we do it faithfully. And you're going to have days where you go to pray and everything is great and you feel like you're on top of the world and there's no care in the world. You've got no concerns. Those days seem to get fewer and further between the older that you get. At least that's my limited experience with them. But you'll have those days. And prayer will train you. You are not all of that. There are legitimate reasons for you not to be full of yourself and overconfident and to have no care in the world. You should stop and acknowledge the Lord. Only if you continue in prayer. So that's the first one. P, persevere. Don't quit. If you're going to quit anything, don't quit that. Second letter in the word pray. R, R, which I would say should stand for readiness in the text. Readiness. Where do I get that? Verse 2 of Colossians 4. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Do you know what the word vigilant in the New King James there is? Watchful. Vigilant. Watchful. Matter of fact, some older translations immediately adapt this to watching for the day or watching for the Lord. You are to be vigilant and watchful. In other words, ready. You are to be alert. You are to be awake. Other places where this instruction appears in the Bible. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane with His disciples. Be still. Watch and pray. Be alert. Be awake. Be attentive and pray. How do they do? Not so great. Not so great. Uh, Other places. 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Watch. Stand firm in the faith. Be alert. Be on your guard. Be awake. Finally, all throughout Jesus' ministry, watch for you do not know when the Lord will return. Watch for you do not know when your master will return. Watch for the Lord is coming. Watch you do not know the hour you will stand before him. Be awake. Be alert. It means the same thing. We are supposed to be ready. Sleepwalking Christians have lousy prayer lives. What do I mean by sleepwalking? What's the opposite of being alert and ready? It's it's not being deliberate about the way you're supposed to live. You know, what does a sleepwalker do? Are they mindful of what's going on? Are Are they moving with purpose? Are they evaluating what they're doing? No, I mean, people who truly suffer with that kind of a disease are in danger. The people around them who love them and care about them have to be careful. They could be outside in the cold. There are accounts of people freezing to death in the winter because they've wandered outside completely unaware. There are Christians who are asleep at the wheel. They're not living their lives with an alertness that the Lord will return. They're not living their lives spiritually awake. They're not paying attention to what they're supposed to be doing. They're just going through life. It's on cruise control. Another season, another birthday, one thing into the next, and we're just cycling through things over and over again, and there's no watchfulness, and there's no readiness, and there's no hint. There's no hint of the weightiness of the fact that you will give an account for the way that you are living your life. There's no weightiness of Jesus speaking to His disciples that they are stewards of what God has given them, managers, and the master will return and call them into account. There's no preparing for that. They're just going on. People like that don't have good prayer lives. 
They don't have good prayer lives. They don't need to. They're not considering these things. They don't need to pray about them. They're not evaluating. They're not thinking. They're just going. That's no way to live. So Paul says, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it, watchful in it, with thanksgiving. Now, I won't add a statement about thanksgiving. We could, could do a long thing. Done that a few times in Colossians already. But I will move on to the next letter in pray, which is the letter A, which I'll simply say we should remember as ask here. And I say that because ask. Verse 3 says, Meanwhile, praying also for us. Now, that word, praying, is not the same word as the prayer in verse 2, but this word that appears now in verse 3 carries with it a clear indication of presenting a petition or a request. In other words, not all prayer is request after request after request. Some prayer is supposed to be acknowledging God. Some prayer is supposed to be speaking with your Father. You see that in the Lord's Prayer. There are no requests in the first four or five statements, just in the model. But we are called specifically, and I hope you're encouraged by this, to ask God for things. There is a segment of our prayer where we are to make petition. Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now hear that again. Be anxious for nothing. Don't worry about any need. But in everything, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Uh, if you have a, uh, a child of a certain age, and the child knows, for instance, that you have bought ice cream at the store, and that it's in the freezer. Um, I don't know what happens in the minds of kids, but it does happen. Uh, at some point, they think of it kind of out of nowhere. You know, you may have bought it a week ago. I don't know if they stumble upon it, and they ask for the first time, can I have, can I have ice cream? And as a parent, you don't, you know, you, you don't just give in unless you're maybe a better parent than I am. You say, no, you know, we bought that, you know, maybe later. And what's going to happen five minutes later is a certain kind of child is going to come back to you and ask you, can I have ice cream now? And then after a, a few minutes of, of the child, you know, going about doing something else, they're going to come back and say, when can we have ice cream? And can I have ice cream now? And it's going to continue until you tell the child, go away and leave me alone. Don't ask me. You know, that's what it, it comes down to, right? Don't ask me about this again. Susan's nodding. Uh, so James must have been one of those kids. Growing. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Uh, but that's what I do as a parent. Stop. Don't ask me again. I will tell you when it is time to have ice cream, okay? You will not be missed. Stop, okay? Now, why do I do that? I do that because I'm irritated. Uh, I am, am not the kind of, of parent who wants the child to come up and just pepper me with, you know, blah, 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 can I have ice cream, can I have ice cream, as if I'm going to somehow consume the whole thing and not, although I have done that a few times, so maybe they have a valid point in asking me over and over again, uh, come to think of it. But, but I want them to trust me, even if they shouldn't. And it's annoying. It's irritating, right? So how is that different here? God wants us to ask because it demonstrates a couple of things. First, it demonstrates that we really want the thing that we're asking for. And this is the connotation you get from James chapter 1, verse 6. James 1, 6 tells us to ask God, and He'll answer our prayer, but He says this, Let him who asks, asks in faith. Because a man who doesn't ask in faith is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Let him who asks, asks in faith. And I'm telling you, if you're the kind of person who asks God for something once and never brings it up again, I'm not sure you're asking in faith. I'm not sure you want the thing that you want. Asking over and over again demonstrates diligence and perseverance that what we want, we truly want. The second thing asking over and over again demonstrates is that we believe that the person that we're asking this for can deliver what we're asking. My child does not go up to a brother or a sister and ask for the ice cream over and over again because they cannot deliver it. If they deliver it, they're going to be in trouble. 
They ask me because they know I, and unless mom's around, in which case she's going to get hit with this next, but they know I am the one that can deliver the request. What does it say then when we are not persistent in our request before God? Either we don't really want the thing that we've asked, that we've asked for, which honestly, Christians, you ought to evaluate. Because we get asked to pray for stuff all the time if you're active in the body of Christ. We ask for them once and we don't ever mention them again. I don't think that's diligence in prayer for your brothers and sisters. I don't think that's diligence. I think it demonstrates what's actually going on, that we are kind of fulfilling an obligation, hoping it does some good, without actually climbing down into the trenches with someone to make petition before our God. So it could demonstrate we don't really want the thing, or, and this is even scarier, we don't really believe God's going to give it. Or that He can. Or that He wants to. If you really need something, you go to the person who can give it, and you are persistent to get it. Over and over and over again. Adult, child, it doesn't matter. We are told to ask the Lord for things. Now in Colossians 4, it says, Pray for us, asking that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains. This is Paul's concern. Paul was a missionary. He is in jail. Not the easiest of circumstances for a missionary to operate locked up. Which brings us to the final letter in the word pray. Why? And I cheated here. Yahweh. Kind of a cheat. If you want to know how to spell that, you can just put Y-H-W-H. It is the Old Testament name of God. We are to trust in God's work in prayer. We are to trust in God's sovereignty. To trust in God's provision. We're not going to Him because we're rubbing you know, a genie's lamp and hoping that someone pops out and maybe my request will be answered. I hate it. I hate it. When I read somebody write something like, throw up some prayers for me. Nonsense. Nonsense. That is not what we're doing. We're not throwing up prayers to God. You know, hopefully some of them will get answered. Maybe some will get heard. That's not what Daniel's doing when he gets down on his knees and he prays to the God of high heavens to hear his requests. You have a heavenly father if you're a Christian. You shouldn't treat the time you spend speaking to him with the casualness of, I'm just going to throw up some incantations and some chants and some of them might do the trick and hopefully things get better. How many of you are parents? How would you feel about that? Here you have a child who needs something, who is burdened by something, who is suffering with something. And they treat you with that kind of casualness. Well, I guess I'll just send dad a text. Hey dad, you know, can I have some of this? Period. End of story. Whatever. That's not what our prayer life is. We are calling upon God to work. Here Paul is calling on God to open doors for His Word to be shared, for His ministry to be effective. And opening the doors has in the context of this to free Him from the chains, to, to, to let Him out of imprisonment so that He can go and do this work so that He can be effective. Only God can do this. And he asked that they'll pray for him, that they'll be diligent in their prayer for him, that God will do this. And you know what? God does it. God does it. Because God is good. And he is sovereign. And things that seem way too big to us, like being locked in jail and being, you know, wanted execution by legal experts who are after you is not too big for God. But let him ask in faith. Otherwise, he's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So we are to pray. We are to persevere. We are to be alert. We are to make requests faithfully and rightly before our Heavenly Father. 
And we are to trust God to work. Now, there is a caution and we'll end with this. Look at verse 4. Pray that God would open doors for the word to speak may of Christ, which I am also in chains, verse 3, verse 4, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Prayer is not, here God is a job that I know should be done, please go do it for me. That's not it. Paul is not saying the gospel really needs to get to these people. I really need to share it. So Father, please, by some means, get the gospel to them. And I'm just going to be faithful to pray over and over again. That's not what he says. Pray that the Lord will work so that I can do what I ought to do for Him. That's what he says. You know, the Bible warns us about this in other places, doesn't it? It does. He who sees his brother suffering and doesn't do anything, you know, to him it is sin. That's not the love of God in his heart. That's 1 John 3. The person who would say to the one who is starving, I'll pray with you, peace be still, and go on their way is a hypocrite. That's the message from God's word. You still have to act in faith. It should tell you something about the preciousness, I think specifically as it pertains to the gospel of God opening a door. I tell you, it's sad to me that either we don't pray for God to open the door for the Holy Spirit of God to prepare someone to hear the gospel. That's sad. And it's also sad and alarming that when a door is opened, we're not faithful with it. I hope that's not happening, but it does happen. And that should be a warning. I mean... Think that the God of all the universe could work in the life of some hard-hearted person to open a window for them to hear that there is a Savior who came to this earth as a baby and died on the cross to pay for their sin, rose from the grave to give them eternal life. And God, through circumstances you don't see because you only see people in flashes, you're not with them all day long, You're not with them in sleepless nights. You're not around them all the time. Because you only see people in flashes, you have no idea that God is working in this person's life through suffering, through blessing, through other testimonies, through thoughts that you have no idea they're thinking to prepare them and open the door for the gospel. And here he sends you an emissary of the gospel into their life. Perhaps not a Bible scholar but someone who knows that Jesus Christ has died on the cross to save them from the judgment of their sin. And we don't take the opportunity. We talk about open doors a lot. Well, God really opened a door here. God really opened a door there. Satan doesn't open any of those doors the Lord is actually opening. And how many, I mean, Satan can open doors too. Satan doesn't open doors for the gospel. It's the most precious way God can work. And when he works that way to open a door, I mean, here is Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 9. This is his testimony of what he was experiencing at this particular time. And when he wrote the letter to the Corinthian church, he wrote, a great door for effective work has opened to me. Now, Paul worked everywhere he went. That's the testimony, right? But just because you're a missionary, just because you're an evangelist, just because you're a Christian who wants to see someone saved, just because you show up sharing the gospel doesn't mean anybody hears it. That's a frustrating experience, isn't it? Those of you who shared the gospel know what I mean. It's a frustrating experience to share the gospel and it just like it banging off somebody's iron head. You find someone whom the Lord has opened up an opportunity. That is a precious thing. That is the thing that God did in your life when you heard the gospel and decided that you would surrender your life to this Messiah who lived and died for you and who lives again. You didn't come to that conclusion on your own. You didn't have some great epiphany of wisdom and intelligence. No. The wisdom of the cross is foolishness to the world. That's what the Bible says. God did a miracle 
And if God does some miracle to where you can share the gospel with someone whom he has prepared to receive it, that ought to be a door you've got to charge through. So we have to do as we ought to do. Very simply, the Bible says, To him who knows to do good and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. That's the statement of the Word of God. Now we have a message of hope and a message people are sensitive to, especially at this time of year. People who don't think about Jesus any other time of year go to live nativity scenes, listen to children, performances, sing, put up decorations at their house that say things about Jesus. We ought to be filled with the gospel message right now with hope. In every one of those relationships, we ought to be bathing in daily, regular prayer. Which will not be hard if you're alert, as we should be, and if you're diligent, persevering in prayer. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I ask now that you let this time be a time of repentance for those of us who remember to brush our teeth and remember to pay the bills and remember to eat our meals and neglect you. I count myself among the number of those people. Forgive us our sin. Forgive me, Lord. Father, I ask now that you'll do what only you can do, which is change the heart of a person in a moment. You and you alone can fill us with convictions that will last by the work of your Holy Spirit. Help us to set aside pride that someone else might watch or that someone else might hear or that someone else might know that we get on our hands and knees and pray as Jesus did. Forgive us, Father, and bring about this repentance so that we may be a people that petition you. That we may be a people who learn from you. That we may be a people who grow in you. Help us, Father, to have a reverence for your holy name and not to trivialize its usage with token prayers and gestures that are not born out of a heart of readiness or anticipation of answered prayer. Forgive us. Forgive us and bless us. Bless us with the knowledge of your presence as we come before you. Bless us with the witness of your power as we see you work. Bless us with the strength to do what we ought to do, to say what we ought to say. Father, I thank you for your provision. I thank you for the faithfulness of your people here, all of your people here. Help us to be wise and good stewards of what you've given us. Father, for as long as we bring you glory, help us to praise your name and honor you with what we do. It's in the name of Jesus that we come before you. Amen.